Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 10 through 17 as we study this letter that Paul wrote. For those of you that haven't been here, let me just take a couple of seconds to fill you in on why he even wrote it. Because he's writing to people. Kind of like when you write a letter, you're writing to people. There's an occasion for which you're writing the letter. And you're trying to maybe interact with people on some things that are going on in life. Paul was no different. He plants this church and uh, leads a lot of young Corinthians to Jesus. That's pretty cool. They're in this booming city. It has a beautiful port. It's an economic powerhouse. It's a vacation destination The architecture there was on point. I know you were worried about that. The architecture, it was awesome. Uh, They also had a lot of temples to a lot of gods. And then you got Paul leading these people to Jesus and starting a church in that context. Paul gets a report that, well, this young church, they're starting to struggle a little bit. Hard to believe, I know, but they're starting to struggle a little bit. And so this morning, what we're going to be talking about is one of the ways that they struggle. Namely, they, dis- they struggled with divisions within their own church. Now, by the way, these are not small disagreements, you know. Uh, these were enough to cause major static with the people in the church. Let me give you a couple of examples. How should we view sex? Well, they disagreed, and it caused issues. Question, does that sound like a relevant conversation for the church today? I think the answer is yes. They were questioning the reports of miracles that had happened. Did they even happen? They were starting to wonder about that. Does that seem relevant today? Do you find people, even within the church, questioning the miracles that you find in the Bible? I think that's relevant for today. And honestly, here's how some of us respond. You, you start to see what's going on in this church, and you, you, you know, a perfectly natural response would be something like this. Man, that Corinthian church, they are messed up. And by the way, They were messed up. You would be absolutely right. But here's another perfectly natural way to respond. It would be like this. I don't think I'm going to go there. You know, I don't think I'm going to go to the First Baptist Church of Corinth. That's not what they were called, by the way. Just, I don't think I'm going to go there. I mean, it's messy. Ugh, the people. It's exhausting. It's tiresome. And frankly, with all the chaos going on in the church there, I just don't think my needs are going to get met. That would be a perfectly natural and ungodly way to respond to what's happening in a church. Um, I, I see it a little bit of a different way. If you see those, these kinds of things happening in a church, that church is actually probably doing something right, not something wrong. A church that is actually doing the work of Jesus is, supposed to be, is probably going to be having these issues. And here's why. is because that kind of church is the one that's actually doing something to reach the community that's around them. And the people that have nothing to do with Jesus start to come into the church. And when they start to come into the church, do you know what they bring with them? The same stuff I brought with me before I really came to Jesus. They brought all that with them. They brought in uh, the worship of Aphrodite. They brought in the worship of all the other gods. They brought in all of the other practices that they had before. It just walked in the door. Now, how clean do you think that's going to be? And you don't just wake up and say, yeah, I'm a completely different person today. You got all that history and belief and practice. And even after you come to Jesus, it's been a large part of your life. It just walked in the door. You know what I say? Thank God it walked in the door. Where else do you want people to be except in church where they can find the Lord? It's going to get 
messy. Tim Keller said that there are two kinds of problems that churches have. I was like, only two? He said, there are two kinds of problems that churches have. I'm only going to focus on one of them. He calls them living problems. Here's what he says. The church is reaching unchurched people who are bringing in all their issues. And because they reach across political lines, there are messy political discussions. Have y'all had one of those lately? They're really fun. Because they reach across ethnic boundaries, they have to wade through uncomfortable cultural clashes. Because they reach across financial boundaries, they have to discuss how the poor and the wealthy can do life together. And the people that you bring in don't always know how to talk or how to behave. Isn't that true? Here's what Tim Keller says. That's a good sign for your church. That's a living problem. Your church is alive. Dead churches, they don't have these problems because they're not reaching anybody. You're constantly hanging out with each other. You've all become the same. And so while you're happy and contented, you're also kind of useless. He's like, I'll take the problems. I'll take the problems. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, I actually started in ministry as a college pastor. I was a pastor to college students. And I remember this one guy. It was a really incredible story of him coming to faith. I mean, he, he had a drug and alcohol background. And when I say background, I'm talking about it was really a hardcore addiction. He comes walking into the church because he was really at the end of his rope. And he meets me. And, uh, and I start to disciple him. And you see the Lord do an incredible work of grace in his life. It, it was really something. And I thought we would meet on a Monday night uh, and, and have a time only for the college students. And we would worship together. And I thought, you know, the college, they would love to hear this guy's testimony. I mean, what an amazing story of, of grace that God has, has worked in this person's heart. And so he gets up and he's sharing his story and it was unbelievable. And you see, people are crying over what they see that God had done in his life. Um, but here was the part, is he gets to the point and he says, I'm just saying y'all, before I met Jesus, my life was really F-bombed up. <laughs> and I'm sitting out there going, man, my email is gonna get lit <laughs> up for that. And I was right. <laughs> I was right. I, I bring that up basically to make a simple point. If we're reaching people for Jesus, I'll take those problems. W will you? I will. Now, after we were done that night, just so you know, I walked around. I was like, hey, man, come here. You know, uh, don't say that. All right, and then we moved on like adults do, right? And he was like, yeah, it just kind of went, Bleh! and it was out. And I was like, well, can't get it back. I was like, no, but we cannot do it again, right? Are we all on the same page? He's like, all right, all right, all right. I love those kinds of stories. But here you have in the early Corinthian church, you have divisions. You do. And you see this, and you see it in, in chapter 1, verse 10. Here's what, here's what Paul says to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions. By the way, the word that he uses there, don't let there be splits. Don't let there be the cracks. Don't let there be tears don't let there be divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and in purpose. Well, good luck. I mean, some of the divisions that they were facing in this church were theological divisions, you know, matters of, of doctrine and practice. But the main thing that Paul is talking about here were personality divisions in the church. And I can prove it because you see it in the next two verses. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, For some members of Chloe's household 
have told me about your quarrels. Now, he's writing this from Ephesus, just so you know. So word gets from Corinth all the way to Ephesus for this guy. He's like, somebody reached out to me. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm going to be speaking some truth to you. So members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my brothers and sisters. Some of you were saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I am of Apollos. Others, I follow Peter. Or others, I follow only Christ. So somehow Paul gets word from Chloe's home about these divisions. And honestly, we're not even sure who Chloe is. She's just mentioned in this letter. Some New Testament scholars think that she was probably a wealthy businesswoman and that she had opened up her home so that the early church, they would have corporate gatherings. But a lot of times what they did is they met in homes. They had a meal together. They, they would study the word together, pray for each other and love and support each other. Maybe she was one that had opened up her home. But a little bit of background for these verses. Did you see those names that were dropped? Some of you are like, I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. Well, I'm of Jesus. Did you catch that? Like he's naming names. Let me give you a little background of this so it can make some sense. There was a movement at that time that was called the Sophists. And they were eloquent speakers. This practice actually goes back to a guy named Socrates, or in the time of Socrates. They were eloquent speakers. The thing about the sophists was, is that every sophist would have a disciple. So they were trained in rhetoric for the purpose of persuading people, sometimes even, even to manipulate people into believing and accepting certain things. And every sophist would have a, uh, a disciple that was underneath them. It's almost like in Star Wars, the Sith. You know what I'm talking about? The Sith, there are always only how many people? Two. I have a couple of people that have watched Star Wars. <laughs> There's always two. You have the master, and then you have the one that's the disciple, right? So you have two. Uh, well, it was no different here. You always had one that was the trainer, and you had the one that was underneath them. And there were conflicts because, because then, because sophistry, just so you know, it was a money-making thing. These people would come in, and they would get people to buy in. Remember, they would persuade them. There was a money-making aspect of this, and so they got really territorial. I mean, after all, if you start following this guy and his trainee, the money's going to go there. But... If I can actually get you to buy into me, it's going to come to me. And so they started like this. This was all over Corinth. And it wasn't so much about the truth. It was mostly about the cash. Well, your duty as a follower of your teacher was to tear down the other sophist in a very public way. It was to rip their credibility, to destroy their reputation. And it seems that the people in the church at Corinth, the letter that Paul's writing, let this practice seep into the way they did business in the church. Did you notice the camps that existed? Some said, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy. Well, who was Paul? Well, some are going to naturally gravitate to him. Paul was the founder of the church. So, I, I mean, I'm connected to the founder of the church, you know, so that's a good thing. Notice who I'm with. Um, and it's not just that. Paul is awesome in theology. I mean, half your New Testament is written by this guy. However, if you read, there's a letter called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. You maybe have never heard of that. It's not in the canon of Scripture. But it reports something about Paul. Here's what it says. It describes him a little bit. He was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body, meaning he's 
not fit, with eyebrows meeting, and a nose somewhat hooked. Well, there's Paul. I mean, some of you thought that probably when Paul walked into these things, he looked like Brad Pitt. It didn't. He had a unibrow, and he was fat and short and a hook nose. Imagine that guy walking in and saying, I'm here to preach today. Everybody's distracted, right? But some were following Paul, mainly because this guy is a theologian. Did you know that Paul even described himself? He says, you know, I'm actually pretty good at writing. I'm not that great at speaking. He says that even about himself in 2 Corinthians. I'm just not as good at it. And I can prove it. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you would run into the 20th chapter of Acts. And there, Paul's preaching. And there's this guy named Eutychus. And Eutychus is kind of sitting up in the window while Paul is preaching. We don't know how long his sermon went. However, Eutychus fell asleep. Hard to believe, but so he falls asleep. And not only that, brother takes a header out of the window behind him, falls three floors down, bam, hits the ground, and he dies. That hasn't happened today at Woodridge. <laughs> you know, you're welcome. Uh, that happened to Eutychus. Hold on. Paul's like, uh, let me mark my notes here. He goes down, raises Eutychus up and says, sermon's not over. Let's go. Gets him back up. Paul was great at writing. He wasn't as good at public speaking. But there were people that were following him. There were other people that were following a guy named Apollos. Now, I know you're wondering who that guy is. Well, he was the guy that showed up in Corinth after Paul really grew the church. You have to go look at Acts chapter 18 for that. But he shows up educated, awesome speaker, really intelligent. It says that he's from Alexandria, which was kind of an academic hotbed back in the day. Really smart guy, even though sometimes he'd get off track theologically. We know that. In Acts chapter 18, it says Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside and trained him in a better way in the word. In other words, this guy is really charismatic, and people are like drawing into Apollos because of it. A lot of people are coming to Jesus, but he has those moments where he says some things, and they're like, well, hold on, that's not exactly right. But he still had his followers, and they were very, very loyal to him. Uh, it reminds me of, of something. Years ago, there was a preacher named John Chrysostom, and it was said that great crowds would come to listen to him because he was such an incredible speaker. And then there was this time where he was slated to be the one preaching, and he didn't show up. Instead, he sent somebody else to preach. Now, imagine that, right? Now, here was the thing, though. With the person that he sent, he also sent a message. And the message was this. Were you here to hear John Chrysostom, or were you here to hear Jesus? Who, who are you here for? Now, my favorite group of this bunch, just so you know, are the ones that are of Jesus, because there's always that crew. Do you know? What's interesting is I was reading New Testament scholars, they're like, this was the worst bunch of the crew. And they're the ones that's most explicitly identifying themselves with Jesus. They were the worst. The reason they say that, that they were the worst, is because they thought they didn't need the church. Just them and Jesus. They were anti-authority, so they weren't going to have really any play for pastors or elders or any kind of leadership, for that matter. We don't need to waste our time with that. It's just me and Jesus. You notice the, the Jesus juke there, right? Spiritualizing basically sin, which is kind of what we do. And they were absolutely no different. Now, you may say, why you bring all that up? Well, one is because Paul brought it up. But, you know, we still deal with it today. Did you know that? 
that there are divisions that happen in the church because we align ourselves, not necessarily under something in theology, but because we've aligned ourselves with a person or a personality. And Paul is giving us a strong word of caution here, don't do it. You could say it like this, I'm a Mark Barnhill kind of guy. I mean, Mark Barnhill, I love fishing. And that Mark Barnhill loves to fish, and I love fishing with that guy. I am of Mark Barnhill. You could say, I'm a Hugh Poland kind of guy. I, mean, I, just, I just think of the, the experiences that we've had together, and so I'm just really connected and joined at the hip with Hugh Poland. Or you could say, I'm a Rhett Dunson kind of guy. I mean, we've played basketball together. He's gone and watched my kids do their things. I mean, what is not to love about Rhett Dunson? Nothing at all. There's a lot to love about Rhett Dunson. That was your chance to say amen. <laughs> I'm a Rhett Dunson kind of guy. Or you, you could say this, I'm a Faith Gross Hands kind of girl. She hasn't, you actually had people speak up when I said that. Uh, right in the point where we don't do that, right? But <laughs> I'm a Faith Gross Hands kind of girl. I mean, what an amazing heart. What an awesome listener. What a great speaker. And you know what? All of that stuff would actually be true. Or you could say, I'm a Tiffany Dunson kind of person because, man, I love to sing. We could do this all day. We could do it all day. And you know what? We do it still. And Paul here is saying, and you shouldn't. And here's why. We have biblical reasons for avoiding these games. And if nothing else, there's a cautionary tale. Recently, there has been a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. Some of you have probably listened to it. Mark Driscoll, who goes up into one of the most difficult places to plant or even to grow a church, he goes up into Seattle and he plants Mars Hill Church. And the church really starts to explode. Uh, after a while, I think there's something like 50, there's like 15, 10 to 15 different campuses, 15 to 20,000 people over all of those campuses. But then you kind of pump the brakes and you see all the good things that he did. And he did a lot of great things led a lot of people to the Lord. However, he also got to be in a very spiritually unhealthy place. But you had those people that were so loyally aligned to him that it started to create fractions and fissures in the church. It created cracks to the point that even when he was stepping out of line and even abusing the other elders of the church, no one was willing to step up because they were scared to say anything. It should never get like that. Am I right? It should never get like that. And the other, the other reason it's a cautionary tale is because if you look at Mars Hill, when eventually he did step down within a month, Mars Hill Church didn't exist anymore. 15, 20,000 people, 10, 15 campuses, they don't exist anymore. That's a cautionary tale because the church isn't built on a person or a personality. It is built on Jesus Christ. That's where it's built, and that's where it stays. So how do we, how do we handle this? I think a couple of things I want you to remember as we talk about correcting a spirit of divisiveness, and one is to identify whether or not you have had a spirit of divisiveness. You know, I mean, just being honest with yourself, have I actually contributed to the problem by being aligned with a person or a personality rather than the work of the gospel in and through the church that God created for me the same understanding and the same conviction that Paul talks about in verse 10, it is the gospel. That's first. That's why we exist. 
It's why I'm saved. And for all of you who called on the name of the Lord, it is why you are saved. That's it. You say, why does Woodridge exist? It's for two simple reasons. It's so that people that don't know Jesus and haven't experienced his love and forgiveness can have that. They can have that. That's why we're here. And then the second part is for those that have already found Jesus can be built up, trained, edified, and put to good use through the work of the church and growing in maturity in your spiritual faith. That is why we exist. We do not exist to be entertained. God is, is interested in our holiness. He is not as interested in our happiness. But that's why we are here. For Paul, let me tell you what unity isn't. Unity is not everybody agreeing with each other. It won't happen. It won't. At least on peripheral things. We will disagree. And you know what? For the most part, so what? So what? Uh, some of my best friends are dyed-in-the-wool followers of John Calvin. They are dyed-in-the-wool Calvinists. You know what? I'm not. Here's what we do. We sit down, we talk about that, and then we go eat fried chicken like normal people do. That's what we do. You know why? Because here's what we agree on. We agree on the Trinity. We agree on the incarnation. We agree on the atonement and all of those things. We agree on the bodily resurrection. No question there. And we hang our hat on that because that is what it's all about. The rest of it, we're trying to figure it out. Because there are parts of Scripture that are honestly just difficult to understand. We put it to good work. You're not going to agree with everybody. It's knowing the difference on how to disagree on those things that are not the center of the bullseye. And frankly, some of us aren't very good at it. It's like, if you don't agree with me with everything, I'm canceling you out. Our culture as a church should look different. We should look different. The other part of unity is, is, is not everything goes. Well, just to maintain a spirit of peace then I have to allow everybody to believe anything. Well, that won't work either. It was like I've said before, none of you actually believe that in your life and your practice, except when we have conversations, it seems, about God, who God is. Nobody believes it, for example, about medicine. I've never seen somebody say, well, I can take an antibiotic for an upper respiratory infection, or I can take rat poison, whatever you prefer. I've never seen anybody do anything like that. And the fact of the matter is, our beliefs don't make God who God is. They don't. We want our beliefs to align with who God truly is. And there is a big difference. So it can't be that. It can't be refusing to take a stand on anything. In fact, if you look at this letter, Paul is going to be identifying certain beliefs and then say we have to agree on certain things. Otherwise, we're not talking about Christianity anymore. But you guys are allowing disagreements on other things to tear down Christ's church. My question for you this morning, and I'm not saying you have, is have you been a part of creating fractions in the church? Here's what Paul says about it in verse 13. He says, let me ask you a question. Has Christ been divided into factions? The answer to that, by the way, is no. Was, was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. By the way, when he says in the name of, just so you know, that's a Greco-Roman reference to slaves. You're in the name of someone. So if, if I had a slave in Corinth, they would be under the name of my house. Paul's saying, you're under the name of someone. But it isn't me. It's Jesus. Don't forget it. So when you were bought, you came in the name of your new master. Jesus is your new master. We're baptized into a new name. We're baptized into a new ownership. We're baptized into a way of life. It's what we are. I love college sports. Y'all love it? March Madness is about to happen. 
My Aggies are about to beat Tennessee. I hope. <laughs> I hope. Do you know one of the reasons I love college sports? Is because when you watch the games, I went to a game at Duke, uh, Cameron Indoor for basketball. I'm telling you folks, there's nothing quite like it at Cameron Indoor. It was nuts. It was a lot of fun. And you watch those fans. First of all, they're right here and the players are right here. But they're trying to inbound the ball. And all those fans are right there with their hands doing this in front of the, the guy that's trying to inbound. It is so fun to watch. But the reason it's so fun to watch is because all of them are working together toward a common purpose, and it is to defeat the enemy. It is why they are there. That's why I love it. It should be the true of the church as well. And so Paul goes on. He says in verse 14, he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. Isn't that a weird thing to say? I just thank God I didn't baptize you. Well, except for Crispus and Gaius. Uh, for, for now, no one, no one can say that they were baptized in my name. Oh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. But watch this line. He goes, I don't remember anybody else. I don't remember anybody else. Now, why does he throw that in there? It's kind of a burn when you think about it a little bit. It, he's not trying to burn anybody. It's, it's really not it. He says Crispus. Crispus was one of his first converts. He's like, yeah, I baptized that guy. Gaius, he's probably, a, 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 his other name is probably Titius Justus. You see this in, in uh, Acts. That was an early synagogue leader that, let, that became a Christian. He leaves Judaism and he becomes a Christian. He's like, yeah, I baptized that guy. Who else did you baptize? Cry, I don't know. And here's why he says this. He talks about baptism because he's talking about an identification. You're taking up a new name. You're taking up a new identity. When we baptize here at Woodridge, we, we quote Romans 6. You are buried with Christ in baptism. This dies. This old life dies. And you're raised to walk in the newness of his life. And when we're, when we're doing this, it's more than just getting wet. It is a proclamation of walking away from an old way of life into a new way of life, a new identity and a new community. These people in Corinth were walking away from an old identity, an old community into a new community and a whole new way of seeing everything. That's what we do. That's why it's so important that you do it. It's a new, you're saying I'm one of you and we're going to hold each other in account for this because we said we're new and we're going to walk in a new way. Paul, I think, is pulling off a little bit and saying, I, I, I don't even baptize. I'll let somebody else do it because he says, my job, my job is to proclaim Jesus. And that's what I'll do. So in Corinth, here's what they were doing. They were taking the baptizer seriously, but not baptism seriously. Oh, who did it? Oh, Paul, Paul baptized me. But here's what he says in verse 17. He says, well, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, not with clever speech. Remember the sophists? Remember the people that come in and kind of manipulate, try to persuade? He's like, I didn't even do that. For fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power, I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to play games with you. I'm not going to come in and try to tear somebody else down so that you can then come my way, not interested. I want you to know Christ. That's what I want you to know. So how do we get unity, stay unified, especially in an individualistic culture, because we are that? A couple of things I just want you to remember, because Paul's already said it. Here's first. I want you to stay centered on the cross. Stay centered on the cross. We agree on the center. We might disagree on lesser things. It's all right. Go get some fried chicken together. Talk about it. 
and have some fried chicken. When we focus on the things that are on the periphery and not on the center, we get divided. We just do. Why does the church exist? Simple reason. One is to find those people that have not encountered the love and forgiveness of Jesus so that they can find him. That's part of the mission of the church and to build Christians up into the image of Jesus. That's why the church exists. So when we're spending our time on the purpose of the church, frankly, it cuts off the oxygen that keeps divisions alive. You don't even care about it anymore. We're busy doing greater kingdom things. That's what the church should look like. Second, we should have a healthy view of leaders in the church. We should have a healthy view of leaders in the church. Notice what was happening here. Some people are following Paul. Do you, you remember that? Some people, I'm a Paul. Some people are following Paul. Other pe- and that's unhealthy. It's unhealthy. Others were disrespecting him. Neither works. Neither one works. The church is called to something better. It is to respect the authority in the church, but not to pedestalize any authority in the church. And it's certainly not to denigrate and disrespect any authority in the church. By the way, I'm just going to throw this at you. Did you know that every leader is a human? Did you know that? I I know we lost an hour of sleep, and so I just wanted to throw that at you in case, you know, you're still trying to get your mind pumping a little bit. All leaders are human. We have human problems. It reminded me of this. Years ago, Tony Romo became the starting quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys And uh, he had some good games in there. And I remember Bill Parcells was the coach at the time. And there was this press conference after one of the games. And everybody's like, whoa, Tony Romo, he's just amazing. And Bill Parcells goes, hey, put down the anointing oil. (laughs) That was the head coach, by the way. Put down the anointing oil. Can, can Can I encourage you that when it comes to persons and personalities, put down the anointing oil. No leader should want it, and Paul has said, and we shouldn't do it anyway. We shouldn't do it anyway. So don't disrespect leaders in the church or any position of leadership. Respect them. Paul even says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. He says, brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you, and they give you spiritual guidance. Honor them. That's pastors, that's elders, and honestly, leaders include parents in the church honor them. They do a good work. So idolizing authority, by the way, leads to divisions. You catch that? It leads to divisions. It will. It's inevitable. And if you found that there's a point where you've so aligned yourself with a person that you decided to chicken fry the character of another person doing the Lord's work, you've lost your way. That's what Paul's trying to say. Good news is you can reclaim it today. Get back on track. So remember that, a healthy balance of how we view church leaders, and then finally, remembering your place in the church. Paul says, I'm called to preach, not baptize. Basically, I'm not good at everything. Neither are you. We need each other. We need each other. Nobody's good at everything. This morning, there's a lot here, isn't there? But the whole reason that Paul even writes this is because it's hindering the work of the church in Christ for the good of the people that they were trying to reach in Corinth. And I'm telling you this this morning, it is absolutely no different if it happens in a church in Kingwood, Texas. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.